Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. One year ago, the unthinkable happened. War returned to the European continent. These are among the darkest hours for Europe since the end of World War II. This is the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, on the morning of February 24th. This is not only the greatest violation of international law, it's a violation of the basic principles of human coexistence. It's costing many lives with unknown consequences ahead of us. The consequences for Ukraine and its people have been unimaginable. Cities demolished, thousands killed, and not just soldiers, but innocent people living in a Western democracy. Over four million Ukrainians have fled their homes, many coming to the European Union. In a historic decision, the EU opened its doors to millions of Ukrainians, providing a legal path for them to live, work and go to school. All people who are fleeing war will be granted protection from and access to the EU health, education, labour and residence, regardless of their nationality, ethnicity or skin colour. It's one of the many examples of how Europe has changed as a result of Putin's full-fledged invasion of Ukraine. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. And today, we're reviewing the historic changes that have taken place in the EU over the past year. The policy shifts and decisions, which usually would have taken years, if not decades, but have profoundly changed the nature of Europe itself. What is so shocking about the Russia's war in Ukraine is that we start to fear that this is basically the war from the future and that it's a certain period uh, in European history where we can assume that a major war was not possible in Europe anymore. It's not true. This is Ivan Krastev, the Bulgarian political scientist and one of the foremost thinkers about Europe currently. He's chairman of the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. For different reasons, for different parts of the conflict, it was difficult to believe that there was going to be a war. For Europeans, because we believe that this is a post-war continent. So if there were going to be a war, in a certain way, this was questioning the major assumptions on which the European Union is based. Basically, that economic interdependence 
is going to make the war impossible. Secondly, that military power doesn't matter in the modern world. So for the Europeans, to accept the possibility of the war was basically to accept the limits of our own model. For the Ukrainians, listen, this is incredible because to basically get the idea of the war means that you're getting the idea that you're going to be destroyed by a much bigger power. The uncertainty of how Ukraine and its army would stack up against that much bigger power has surprised the world. Listen, in the beginning of the war, we totally underestimated the moral, the political, the military potential of the Ukrainians. But from time to time now, I do believe we go in the other extreme. We believe that Ukrainians are so heroic that all this destruction, all these deaths is having no impact on them. And listen, this is not true. People are dying. The last weekend, probably just in Bakhmut, both sides are losing more than 1,000 soldiers for a weekend. So what the Ukrainians are starting to understand is that this type of a war, which we're seeing now, is very much about also the industrial power, the industrial production. It's about the size of societies. And Russia is much bigger than Ukraine. And also the readiness to see your people killed. So this is why, if you see in the last weeks, President Zelensky and Ukrainian officials totally shifted their rhetoric. So this is not as long as it takes, but we are going and we want a victory as soon as possible. We want basically this to change. And in my view, this has also a lot to do with something that I found particularly important about this war. Listen, wars are about battlefields, wars about economies, wars are about allies, but this is also about electoral cycles. Because in a certain way, now different players in this war is going to face in 2024 a series of very important elections, which are critical for calculating the war. In 2024, in March, there are going to be presidential elections, both in Ukraine and in Russia. There are going to be European elections in the spring of 2024. There are going to be presidential elections in Taiwan, which depends on how it goes, can very much also shape the Chinese policy towards the conflict. And plus, you're going to have an American elections in which, listening carefully to what President Trump was saying the last weeks, he's basically coming with the message, and this was, uh, in my view, to be read uh, uh, first in political, or if you want to vote for Biden, vote for the World War III. So as a result of it, all this electoral calculations are critically important. So President Zelensky wants a victory and kind of an end of the war before these electoral cycles in all these places started. I do believe it's true for President Biden. It's true for also for Putin, because, of course, the elections in Russia are not the one who decides who's going to be the president. But at the same time, going for these elections, Russian leaders should be able to tell to his people why hundreds of thousands of Russian kids are dying. What is victory? What is the meaning of victory? One year ago, we also did not foresee the rise of a leader who would go on to represent not only the heroism of Ukraine, but arguably become the face of what it means to fight, literally, for Western values. And that person, of course, is Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, when we have one year of the war, we believe that this was the only scenario that was possible. And by the way, this is not true. It takes a moment and it takes a person to capture the public sentiment in a certain moment in order basically the nation to function like this. It was Zelensky's decision to stay in Kiev, contrary to the advices that he was getting from his Western allies, 
And this was the way that he found a language to talk to the Ukrainians that they understand that the war looks in the way it is uh, looking now. It could have been different. If he has went to Viv, probably it's going to be totally different. I'm saying this because, particularly as Europeans, we always try to talk about institutions, about structural factors and others. But personal decisions matters. But at the same time, what is happening is that there is a material part of it. Ukraine now is totally dependent of how much financial and military support it is going to come from the West. Russia obviously has a kind of industrial power, and nevertheless, that the sanctions and very tough sanctions were put on it, it succeeds to produce around 60 missiles per month. So from this point of view, we can easily end up with a Korean type of a situation, which is going to be difficult for both sides, and which even if you're going at some point to have a ceasefire, this is going to be a ceasefire in the absence of peace. And for Europe, this is a disaster scenario, but this is not the most unlikely scenario. And in the Munich Security Conference, I do believe that uh, the German foreign minister formulated it very well. She said, if Russians stop fighting, this is the end of war. If the Ukrainians stop fighting, this is the end of Ukraine. Zelensky and his country surprised the world with their determination and military capabilities. Remember, a year ago, most people expected Kyiv to fall in weeks, if not days. Overnight, more signs that Russia is targeting civilians, stepping up their siege of the capital. Missiles have landed in the heart of Kyiv, slammed into a suburban apartment building. Now, despite the bombardment, Kyiv is holding out against the Russian attacks. Ukrainian President Zelensky releasing a new message telling his people to stand strong and fight. Fight, 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 fight. Meanwhile, in Brussels, the EU embarked on a path of historic policy firsts. As mentioned at the top of the podcast, EU absorbed millions of Ukrainian refugees. It has managed to implement not one, not two, but nine packages of sanctions against Russia, with a tenth on its way. And countries, not least Germany, have cut their crucial energy ties with Russia. Meanwhile, Finland and Sweden, historically neutral countries, are now on the verge of joining the world's largest military alliance, NATO and countries that have historically backed away from sending any form of military aid or equipment onto a battlefield have made dramatic U-turns, none more so than Germany. If one year ago I was going to tell you that there are going to be German tanks given to Ukraine to fight Russia, would you believe me? One of the most important things of the war, and this is true for uh, Europe, this is true for Russia, this is true for the United States, is that what was unthinkable yesterday is becoming common sense tomorrow. And as Krastev points out, these seismic changes are far from over. It is seismic changes, but that this change has not finished. And it can still go in different directions. Uh, I do believe that the shock of war was so strong and also the American leadership was uh, also so decisive. The Europe stayed much more united than I'm sure President Putin, for example, expected. Also dealing with the energy impact of the crisis, many things that Europeans did was amazing. Of course, this time the weather, there was not kind of a general winter, this time was not on the Russian side. (laughs) But the truth is that, for example, Germans managed to reduce 20% of their energy consumption. Can you imagine if somebody a year ago was going to tell you that in a period of one year, Germany is going to totally cut its supply to the Russian gas. And also what you're seeing in some of the countries like Poland, like the Baltic Republic. So this is incredible. The biggest transformation, of course, is Germany. 
And from this point of view, it is quite interesting that uh, people are simply, uh, in my view, is going to take time to realize that for Germany, this one year was not simply change of policies, this was a change of identity. Germans have been for 50, 60 years convinced that at the heart of their policies, understanding that war does not work, that military power does not work. This idea that Germany is a Pacific, uh, is a civilian power. Do you remember German publics during the Iraqi war and others? So this was the identity of the country. And this took this shock uh, in order to change this. And this was also critically important because this war brought back basically the gods of the World War II, the Russian rhetoric about Nazis and so on. On the other side, Ukraine being bombed in the way it was bombed during the World War II. So from this point of view, this is incredible. And also we saw something very important. Also, you can see it very strongly in Eastern Europe. Listen, Europeans can have common dreams, but the nightmares are very national. For Ukraine, one dream driving it forward is the prospect of joining the European Union. There is only one thing which is more difficult than integrating Ukraine, and this is not doing this. Because the investment which Europeans and Americans did in Ukraine, the fact that for many, by the way, in Russia, but also in other parts of the world, this is very much the clash between the West and Russia, means that Ukraine cannot be just back where it was on February 24. Is it going to be immediately type of accession that Bulgaria or Romania had? Also for sure not. Listen, you're going to talk about a country which still probably was going to be in a war. We're talking about a big country. We're talking about a country with a uh, big army. So it's going to be totally different. And of course, we're talking about a lot of money. But in a certain way, even this debate about an enlargement is yesterday's debate. Ukraine is in. The problem is how European Union is going to function, what it means the European Union in kind of a post-Ukraine war situation. The idea that this is going to be the same union simply plus Ukraine is not true. And by the way, the centers of powers are changing dramatically. Imagine that probably at the end of this war, Poland and Ukraine are going to have a much stronger army than most of the other European states. You're going to see also major demographic changes. Eastern Europe was basically depopulated place with a lot of people living and uh, uh, bad demographic trends. And now you have 8% of the population of Poland being the Ukrainians. We are, by the way, not talking much about these social trends. Coming up in part two of the podcast... I do believe this is a major remaking also of the European identity for the moment in which we're going to the world which is much more fragmented, much more polarized. And also European Union probably is also losing things. Our conversation with Ivan Krastev continues on how the war has reshaped European identity. And then... I see that uh, the world leader who used to be saying that let's not rush with fancy weapons, let's talk, let's talk, let's talk. Finally doing something really bold and it demonstrated that a year has passed but our allies are still eager to support us. US President Joe Biden's surprise visit to Kiev this week has lifted Ukrainian spirits. But will it last? From the Ukrainian capital, our colleague Veronika Melkertarova discusses the significance of Biden's visit and what is looming large in the minds of our fellow Ukrainians as February 24th approaches. And finally, we'll visit a museum in Kiev where Ukrainians are hoping to begin a conversation about war crimes 
and holding the Russian Federation accountable. Stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. We're back with Bulgarian political scientist Ivan Krashchev. He believes that the war in Ukraine has ultimately reshaped the entire identity of the European Union. Listen, the most important and the biggest kind of a challenge that the war comes is that Europeans have been living, all of us, to a certain extent at least, in a kind of a much more post-national reality, in a post-heroic society, let's put it like this. And suddenly you understand that when you have this major confrontation, when you have a war, you need heroes. And basically, Ukraine was also the demonstration of the power of the civic nationalism to create a nation and to mobilize a nation. For Europe, this is very important because Europe was always trying to get its legitimacy based on economic success or based on the democratic process. But one of historically the most powerful way to legitimize any type of a political project is war victory. So from this point of view, if European Union, which means Ukraine, is going to end up victorious out of this war, and I'm not going to define what victory exactly means, uh, listen, European Union is going to look totally different in the eyes of its own people. So from this point of view, what Ukraine shows is that people are ready to die for their democracy, they're ready to die for basically being sovereign, that this is not just economically minded societies. I do believe this is a major remaking also of the European identity for the moment in which we're going to the world which is much more fragmented, much more polarized. And also European Union probably is also losing things. If a year ago, when President Macron was talking about EU strategic autonomy and we're trying to imagine basically the policy very different than the Americans, it's much more difficult now because the war also exposed that when it comes to the military potential, European nations, we have not been invested anything. People normally believe this is a political reluctance to give certain weapons to the Ukrainians The reason is that in many cases, we don't give these weapons to the Ukrainians because we don't have them. The European Union is not a defence alliance, but for decades, European countries have been criticised for not investing in their own military capability, not least by the United States, which has long argued that Europe needs to take on more responsibility when it comes to military defence. 
Krastev believes that the war in Ukraine has finally prompted a rethink. In a certain way, the problem is that Europeans, we were taking, for good reasons, by the way, our security for granted. After this war, this is not going to be the case. And this is changing a lot of things. By the way, this is changing also very much domestic political debates. This is changing priorities. And I don't believe this kind of a dramatic way, this war is changing the way the European publics and European politicians see their own society. They see European Union. They see NATO. By the way, one of the, if President Putin believed that expansion of NATO was the reason for the war. So now he ended up with two other countries, Sweden and Finland, basically almost within NATO. So this is going to be a different world. And in a certain way, we still try to explain it based on certain questions that we have been asking ourselves yesterday. But what is, in my view, important for the radically new situation is not that the answers have changed. What has changed are the questions. That was Ivan Krastev speaking to Politico from his office in Vienna. Now, let's turn our focus to the news out of Ukraine this week. The skies were blue and the sun was shining on Monday in Kiev as a wartime president and his US counterpart emerged for a walkabout in front of St. Michael's Cathedral, air raid sirens blaring in the background. When we saw the first uh, video of Biden and Zelensky going out of Mikhailovsky together under the sound of air raid siren, it was like, wow. <laughs> this is Veronika Melkasarova, our political colleague in Kiev. She's explaining the mood as it became clear that Joe Biden had made the risky trip to a country at war, a first for a US president in a country without an American military base. Because nobody expected that uh, American president would dare, although we really had like a lot of European leaders coming, but still, I think it's because of the timing. Ukrainians reacted very cheerfully. Once I saw Biden moving across New York during the UN General Assembly, uh, it was last year, and it was like Manhattan was completely closed. And then I was uh, thinking, like staying in those lines, I was thinking like, nah, this guy would never dare to come to Ukraine. So the fact that he did was a really great boost of morale. And even our troops, because I follow a lot of them on Twitter and social media, many of my friends are there. And they were like saying, especially the ones in Bakhmut, that is like the hottest spot right now. And they were saying like, hey, this uh, grandpa, that's how they call like in joking, warm way, they think like he's like our nation's grandpa. (laughs) The grandpa came like to Kiev, it's far away from us, but... uh, The mood on the front is, like, different today. Guys feel like a moral boost. Biden's visit was no doubt an important boost to morale, just days ahead of the one-year mark. He also pledged an additional $500 million in military aid to Ukraine. But Veronica says Ukraine is also encouraged by the support, not just of America, but of a broader alliance of countries. I was surprised that... Western nations who are used to well-being and like in comparison to our part of the world, uh, you guys have really stable life. (laughs) Wages are higher. People are more eager to like buy cars for the family, several ones. Uh, They want comfort. They're used to that, that they were able to 
majority of those people of those nations were able to say like hey we're gonna like sacrifice uh, a bit with our comfort life to support our values and the fact that in this really weakened uh, by the pandemic and the economic crisis world people were able to say we're ready to sacrifice some more just to stand for democracy for me it was a huge signal that humanity is still worth fighting for <laughs> i would say that because i just returned from um, irpin and bucha and a year has passed but what i saw there it's such a destruction i mean i cannot understand how they occupied part of the irpin and they behaved okay there people are saying that no russians were not looting here when they occupied our territory they just chose the fanciest buildings and looted those buildings they did not do anything to ours however when ukrainians pushed uh, russians away from kiev oblast while retreating russian tanks were just shooting these houses like randomly just to destroy just like you know you're not going to be ours so you're not going to get it either and in ukraine people have to work generations to get a decent apartment and russians destroyed that when you have this on one side of the border you have this civilization that wants to just destroy and on the other side of the border you have nations that are ready to just come and rebuild it because what i saw also in kiev oblast is that mostly western nations funds are doing rebuilding i think that this just brings hope even maybe more hope than biden's visit the fact that many many nations of that world wealthier and more comfortable are ready to sacrifice to just help us this week Veronica traveled to the Kiev suburb of Bucha, the scene of one of the darkest atrocities of the war. One of my stories is about the Battle of Vokzalna Street in Bucha, which was one of the decisive battles of Kiev Oblast, where Ukrainian artillery destroyed a huge Russian column, just like on the central street of Bucha. And there was like, maybe you even remember these pictures, like the very narrow street, full of russian military war machines like destroyed rusty burned and i was there yesterday and i saw the another picture i saw the same street but freshly paved and uh, filled with not like military trucks but construction trucks and not the sounds of bullets were all over the place but the sounds of hammers and drills and construction workers swearing at each other because it was like raining all over and they were like building that new houses on the places of the completely demolished ones and you know everyone when uh, hears the word bucha instantly imagines the bodies this woman's hand lying with these red nails on uh, on the street but now bucha is like recovering and it's sort of a sign of hope but it's not always uh, everywhere like this because in the nearby european people are forced to collect and spend their own money to just renovate their residential buildings because ukrainian government does not have like enough to help everyone and some of the houses the, the one i was yesterday was like 
six-story residential building that was just uh, very, very young, 2016. Small and pretty neighbors knew each other. One woman who's uh, doing, like, she's the head of the local community of uh, flat owners of this building, and she was crying when she was talking to me in this dark room and there was like wind, very atmospheric and very depressing. But she was like, I believe that we will be able to collect this $400,000 to rebuild our house. And I, w- I believe that we will save it and it won't collapse. The same, I believe that Ukraine will win because it's it's not possible in this world when you cannot beat evil. As the one-year mark approaches, I asked Veronica how she is feeling personally and how Ukrainians are feeling as they face into a second year of war. We are generally concerned, of course, but we are also very, very tired. And we saw so much death and so much grief and so much destruction that, I mean, maybe it's like a mental health that dictates us just to focus on uh, something positive that we can find, just like this Biden's visit or rebuilding on Foxalna Street or the fact that we already have uh, stable electricity and uh, even in Bucha, street lighting came back. And uh, I think that We just want to keep fighting and to keep fighting you must not be afraid. And if you just think about everything what's unfair and everything that might kill you any other night, just you don't want to leave anymore. So we focus on positive. Thanks so much to Veronica. Stay safe. Now finally, to end this week's podcast, we're staying with Kiev. And we're going to turn to the idea of accountability for alleged war crimes. It promises to be one of the big international talking points as the war in Ukraine enters its second year. I explored this issue on a recent trip to Ukraine. High on a hill overlooking the Dnieper River in Kiev stands the National Museum of the History of Ukraine. This sprawling complex sits beneath the 62-metre motherland statue that looms over the entire city. The museum was inaugurated in 1981 by Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev at the height of the Cold War. But today, it tells a different history. All objects which you can see in this exhibition was collected by museum team after 24th of February. All items and artefacts are original. And, uh, Today, the museum has a new mission, relaying the ongoing Russian war against Ukraine in real time, as director Yuri Savchuk explains. And uh, in front of uh, us, uh, we can see the red star and the boot of occupant, Russian boots. They're from Russian soldiers, artefacts they left behind when they retreated from areas of Kiev during last year's offensive. On another floor is the wreckage of a downed Russian missile. The aim is a novel one, charting and curating a war while it is happening. The museum sees its aim as part of a broader conversation happening in Ukraine about documenting war crimes. This is Denis Volokta, 
manager of the Kharkiv Human Rights Protection Group. My group is one of the oldest human rights organizations in Ukraine. Now we are working hard on collecting evidence of war crimes and also like humanitarian aid, media and uh, other activities. And when did you start the work you're doing now? Did you start just after the war began or when? Actually, we had some experience uh, during the war in Donbass in 2016-2017. We already have our own database of war crimes. We've been collecting evidence and actually made, uh, I believe, three submissions to International Criminal Court. And now, uh, at the very beginning of this invasion, we made some kind of rebuild of our database and created this initiative, Tribunal for Putin, to to do it, this work more generally, more widespread. And here's his colleague. My name is uh, Svetoslav. Uh, I am a war crime uh, documentator at uh, Center for Civil Liberties. Uh, we collect the data with some process. So first of all, we're looking for information in the open source, uh, like uh, social media, WhatsApp, Telegram, or Viber groups. Uh, after that, uh, our uh, field mission uh, go to this place to check uh, information and um, to make some photo, videos, uh, and interview with uh, victims uh, or uh, witnesses. As the world marks one year of an invasion that many thought would never happen, already the conversation is starting about accountability and coordinating documentary evidence of possible war crimes. The European Commission has already signalled its willingness to work with the international community on establishing a specialised tribunal to investigate and prosecute Russia's crime of aggression, potentially a significant step on an issue that is of crucial importance to Ukraine. Here's European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. We all remember the horrors of Butcher. Russia must pay for its horrific crimes, including for its crime of aggression against a sovereign state. And this is why, while continuing to support the International Criminal Court, we are proposing to set up a specialized court backed by the United Nations to investigate and prosecute Russia's crime of aggression. We are ready to start working with the international community to get the broadest international support possible for this specialized court. In the meantime, though, for the people of Ukraine, the priority is winning on the battlefield as the war continues into a second year. I'm Suzanne Lynch, and thanks for listening to the special edition of EU Confidential. This week's episode was produced by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. And this week, we want to say a special thanks to our editor, James Randerson, who's rolling off the podcast this week. James, you're there in the sound booth. Thanks a million for all your help over the past month and wishing you all the best in your post-political endeavours. And finally, a big thanks to you all for listening. I'll be back next week. See you then. Thank you. 
the secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.